0: Hello, everyone. This is part two of The Rise of the Department Store and the Fall of Francoism with Alejandro Gómez del Moral. Thinking now, moving on to the period around the 1960s, that's a period that I think in the United States we often associate with this kind of cultural revolution and especially changes in the way we think about gender and sexual norms. Can those things be said about Spain as well in this period, keeping in mind that this was still the Franco dictatorship? And if so, to what extent do you think department stores were linked to that shift?
1: Once we get into the late Franco dictatorship, the sort of like elephant in the room, or 800 pound gorilla or whatever Mm -hmm. metaphor you want, is the transition to democracy, right? And that is for good reason. The transition to democracy uh, among scholars and policymakers, the Spanish transition to democracy, was long held as one of the shining examples of the so-called third wave of democratization that took place over the course of the 70s and early 80s. And you know, for champions of international intervention in the name of democracy, cold warriors and such, this is like this big success story, right? You know, Spain especially. Sure, it wasn't you know, the toppling of a communist regime, but still look at the power of American democracy and capitalism and consumption and what have you. So there were real like ideological implications to this, right. to, to, to the success of this transition, and thus also to where it came from. And the dominant model for a good while um, in the uh, from the late seventies, right in the wake of the transition, through the mid nineteen eighties, was this idea that the transition was this political, high political event that had happened. Right, uh, King Juan Carlos got a ton of credit some of which is surely merited mm-hmm. uh, as a, as a, a, a secret democratizer who, who played Franco essentially, and eventually named his uh, in a shock move, named another secret democratizer, prime minister Adolfo Suarez, uh, formerly the national secretary, the secretary general of the national movement. The, the national movement was essentially the ideological wing of the Franco regime. Right. You know, Um, you talk about the Nazi party in Spain, the national movement is the closest analog in, in Spain. It's, it's more complex in some senses because it's, I mean, not the Nazi ideological apparatus was also internally diverse, but the national movement was really internally diverse. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, this is a guy who in theory would have a Francoist pedigree that nobody would complain about, right? Franco had named the king, or, uh, Prince Juan Carlos as his designated successor. There would be a rollover to a monarchy. The expectation was going to be that he was going to preserve Francoism just now in the form of a monarchy. And Adolfo Suarez was, was going to continue as, as a person with clear connections to uh, ideological Francoism was going to help preserve that. But the reality was that in part also because uh, Franco's real right-hand man, an admiral named Luis Carrero Blanco, had been assassinated in the early 70s by the infamous terrorist organization, Euskalitas Catasuna, ETA. There was, there was, there was nobody really well positioned to stop Swarish and King Juan Carlos, and they were able to, to work political levers to get the Franco regime to dismantle itself, essentially, and effect high-level political change. Wave after wave of scholarship, Starting in the 80s and especially heating up in the 90s and 2000s has complicated this dramatically, including someone uh, well known to both you and I, uh, Professor Pamela Radcliffe, who wrote a really excellent book about how a structure that one normally wouldn't necessarily point to as like a linchpin of democratization, neighborhood associations populated by housewives was in fact kind of like a, a small school for democracy right where a c- civil civil society or a school for civil society where 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 people were able to amid the continued repression of the franco regime and foreclosure of any real political life uh in franco spain in the 60s and early 70s were able to engage in what kind of civil activity civil association with them, if they could um the department store, I have argued, and other—I should stress—it's not alone in this. Supermarkets arrive in Spain in the mid to late 1950s, and oddly enough, they also function as 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 a conduit for this. Mm-hmm. As does the rise of modern mass advertising, and as does the uh, continued proliferation of consumer literature magazines, right, which are reporting on. on but also on foreign goings uh, writ larger. These conduits that I mentioned earlier, right? Which are also embodied by supermarkets and, and other consumer forms that I, I just described. They continue to do their thing to import American fashions, American ideas, American pop culture, right? A one thing that was sown, an, an idea that was sown in uh, just the general conversation in Spain over the course of the 1950s was that maybe some innovations that were taking place abroad weren't bad. You know, honestly, maybe sometimes they did, as blasphemous as this might sound, do things better than Spain did. A concrete example of this was there was literature uh, in, or there was content in popular magazines, Um, In the 1950s, that, for instance, pointed to the wonder of the refrigerator, this amazing new contraption that uh, the United States in particular was pioneering um, and how American reliance on uh, can and refrigerator meals, prepackaged frozen foods, was meant that uh, American housewives didn't go gray as quickly because they didn't have to stress about dinner in the same way. And they didn't even have servants, much less worry about their servants not showing up that day uh, because they didn't need to. They could just open up some cans and it was fine. And their husbands, being well, were thin and handsome and quote unquote, ready to be Hollywood stars. Uh, Yes. This is from an actual article. uh, Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, the fault lies uh, among Spanish and other European husbands who were self-styled gourmands, who, you know, wouldn't settle for like a can of refrigerator meal and that this was a bad thing. You know, they should be more like the Americans. But when you think about that in the context of the spiritual reservoir of Occident, Spain has, you know, the right way of doing things. Other countries should look to Spain for guidance on how to order their lives, most especially gender roles, domestic tranquility and such. Mm-hmm. This is not necessarily openly subversive. A potentially subversive, it opens a door that could be opened considerably further. Once the 60s rolls around, it does open further. So, some of the things that you see, right? You see the filtration of newfangled fashions into, into Spain, into department store shelves that are, and, and into popular consumer literature, youth magazines, women's magazines, men's magazines, once they start showing up, that break from this very conservative notion that had previously been championed by some of the same organisms of the stoic male who dresses, for instance, in a very stable toned down black suit with you know, gray tie or solid color tie. Now they can be more playful with their fashion. Right? And this is something that was construed in the, in, in the language of, of popular dress as a feminine trait, an effeminate trait mm. to be uh, sartorially unstable, to change your fat, your, 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 clothing with the changing of the seasons was flighty, undependable, sign of lack of seriousness. Mm. Likewise, we're familiar with the notion of 1960s youth culture. The idea that, that, that young, uh, that young people were suddenly suddenly had cultural cachet, right? And were insisting that their voices had value. And should be heard, and that maybe the older generations didn't have all the answers, and in fact, should take a step back mm-hmm. and, and listen instead of talking. Well, this starts to show up in Spain as well. And recall the Franco regime was built on a notion of patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. A notion of patriarchy where women were subordinate to men, right? This was, actually, this was, this kind of ideal was one of the cornerstones of the doctrine of the women's section of the Falange, Seccion Femenina, which was uh, organ of the Franco regime that managed at one point, uh, or uh, that managed the uh, Servicio Social, which is a social service, which is something that any woman who wanted to be able to uh, engage in any kind of like official legal action, get a job, um, marry, anything like that, had to go through and get the stamp that she had gone Mm -hmm. through. This was and this was construed as a kind of a, a boot camp for Spanish womanhood. Our esteemed late colleague, Aurora Morcillo, wrote eloquently about this. The sección femenina, in their tenets, had, you know, I think it was something to the effect of always be the cart, let the man be the driver. But the idea was, you know, be subservient, let the man dictate. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, and, and the same extended to children as well. The idea was you're a child okay, a male child is automatically superior to a female child and potentially even a mother. But the mother, but ultimately children are absolutely subservient to the father's authority. Mm-hmm. The father is, rules all. And this model extended more generally. The metaphor is actually a really awkward one because Franco famously had this squeaky little voice, right? You right. wouldn't associate him with like a powerful father figure, but he was construed as the pater familias, the sort of like father of the Spanish nation, right? Mm -hmm. strong leader like a lead so anyway the idea is increasingly introduced that oh no youth youths have this vibrant culture and it's okay and it needs to be catered to maybe kids aren't going to dress as miniature adults like wearing suits except their pants are short uh maybe they're going to wear flamboyant fashions maybe we're going to pay attention to mod fashion when it shows up right which is putting its own spin on things you see, uh, Spanish uh, magazines. Um, a couple, uh, a couple of examples I can think of the admittedly left-leaning political news cultural magazine Triunfo, which uh, launches in the, uh, I believe it was the early sixties. But mm-hmm. Triunfo would report on the new trend of unisex, which sure could include high fashion, sort of super transgressive things like bikini bottoms for men and women with no tops. But more commonly, also included something that we consider today as, as normal and unquestioned as jeans and a t-shirt.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. and
1: that was unisex,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, when you think about it, jeans on a woman is transgressive at this time. And mm-hmm. not just in Spain either, right? You know, there's the whole slacks debate uh, that's going on in, in other countries, including the US. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that it is a visible symbol on the daily, sameness as opposed to difference. And the entire gendered social system is predicated, among other things, on the immutable reality that men and women are different and not equal mm-hmm. in Franco Spain. And that Franco Spain is right about that on a, on a philosophical level. This is an immutable human truth. And inasmuch as Franco, uh, you know Francoism upholds that, despite the, eros- the erosive influences of other decadent western countries, it is in the right and superior to other nations. Well, it starts to filter in and it starts yeah. to catch on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh you can start listen to the Beatles. This doesn't cause democratization. Let me be clear about that. My book is mm-hmm. not about how consumption created democratization, but it does lay groundwork. It does open paths. It it smooths the way forward once the time comes. Right. Right. And it does sense. so in another subtle way, too, which is a thing that I detected is that over time, the chatter that you see, and you see it also in the professional literature, this is where I talked a lot about advertising, admin, mm-hmm. and kind of the, the behind the curtain side of it, right? You know, how the professionals who are producing this content are thinking about the content that they're producing, that consumers are then consuming in that And what you see is increased talk of Spain not as different. But as one more member of this Western social, economic, cultural community. And, and so that, that doesn't mean that Spain is uh, that they're saying that Spain is bad or backward, although they do sometimes worry about that. There's this
0: mm.
1: almost you know, uh, internal Freudian conflict going on mm-hmm. among some of these individuals where in one breath they'll say, "Oh Spain is really backward. We need to adopt all of these new marketing concepts, concept, concepts that other countries have you know, because we need to catch up. And then sometimes like two sentences later, but, you know, Spain has achieved a foreign level of expertise, right? Uh, These two things don't really go go together. It it feels a lot like they're, you know, protesting too much, right? Uh, And that there's an anxiety there. Um, But what, what ultimately all of this points to, whether it's a resolved anxiety, unresolved anxiety is a desire. And that desire is for Spain to chart what increasingly seems to be the new path forward in many people's minds, which is, well, what we recognize today that Spain is quote-unquote part of Europe, right, right? right. Um, in the, in kind of a more cultural, economic, trade, social exchange sense rather than mm-hmm. geographic, shared historic, historical.
0: The, the other kind of big theme that I think gets talked about a lot in this period that kind of late Francoism is the rapid economic development um, at that time. So what was the role that department stores played in that kind of economic transformation?
1: So they are venues for that economic transformation. The thing is, you can have an infl- a massive influx of money, right? you can have a massive influx of consumer goods, stuff has to be spent somewhere, has to be sold and bought somewhere. And at this point, I mentioned that Cederias Carretas was one store in 1934. And I mentioned that Galerias Preciados was a branch that opened, I, I don't think I mentioned year 1943. But it doesn't stay that way. That store, Galerias, expands dramatically. First over the course of the 50s and then in meteoric fashion in the 60s. All over the country. Ultimately thousands of employees. A mail order division. Which means that we no longer have to limit ourselves also to thinking, well, okay, they're... Sure, they're having an influence, but only in Bilbao, Madrid, Barcelona, whatever. No, you could order by post. They had catalogs that they could send through the mail. You also have when, in, where testimonials are being, written in, are, are being written in, coming from all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so El Corte Inglés eventually starts spreading as well. They take a little bit longer to do so. They concentrate kind of on... Building themselves up in their home base in Madrid, and then really start expanding in the sixties. And there's Cuba is actually again a factor in that. Uh, the mm-hmm. short version is that uncle I mentioned way back when, Cesar Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, well, the revolution happened, right? The Cuban revolution happened, and he left. He went back to Spain, and he needed to spend all uh, all that money. He needed to invest all that money that he'd made. They called him his nickname in, in Cuba had been El Millonario, the millionaire. Um And he invested in his nephew, Ramon Arefis' store, El Corte mm-hmm. Inglés. That, by the way, is the short so, sort of soundbite version of why El Corte Inglés won that fight, because Galerías overextended and also didn't have that massive influx of capital. They both played the expansion competition game, and Galerías did not have the resources to win that fight. But to return to the question, which mm-hmm. I believe had to do, with the time of rapid economic development. Mm. So first of all, there's economic opening, right? We talk about a period called the Spanish economic miracle, El Milagro Español, uh, which starts in 1959 and ends in 1973. And this I can rattle off really, really uh, easily because I've taught this so many times in classes. The, those endpoints are nice and clear and easy in a way that lots of other transition points aren't because they, they coincide with specific historical phenomena. 1959 coincides with the passing of the first stabilization plan by the, by the, the Francoist administration at the time as well, which happens in the wake of a, of a ministerial rollover. The Franco regime liked to overhaul the cabinets who were largely the actual wielders of, of real power under mm-hmm. Franco, every time Franco wanted to change the regime's political strikes, right? You know, he'd purge, for example, in the mid forties, he purges all of the, uh, all of the really, really, really Nazi aligned phalangist fascist uh, ministers and finishes that job in 1951 because he wants to make the regime look more respectable. 1959, there's been this inflationary crisis and, he needs uh, a new plan of attack, and several ministers who come in who are technocrats associated with the religious organization Opus Dei create this comprehensive economic overhaul package, the stabilization mm-hmm. plan, which kickstarts massive economic development in Spain, right? One of the cornerstones of which is uh, throwing the doors open in a way they hadn't been before, before an investment. And uh, for anyone who's interested in some of the details of that, you can see some of that in Stanley Payne's classic book, The Franco Regime, but also Sasha Pack. I'm going to give a shout out to my, uh, to my uh, friend and colleague, uh, historian Sasha Pack's book, Tourism and Dictatorship, where he talks quite a bit about the kind of policy side of, of this. Um, so this foreign investment is opened up. Also, tourism is invited in. This is really when Spain becomes a massive tourist destination. It also coincides with a series of other economic miracles that have already been unfolding elsewhere in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, usually for much longer, in Britain, in France, in Sweden, which is significant because Sweden is a major source of tourism to Spain, so much so that for a while, the, the term, in fact, I think even today, the term for a, uh, a supposedly sexually available uh, tourist, especially a blonde northern European tourist in Spain, the shorthand is a sueca, right, a Swedish one. So uh, this is how that enters the popular lexicon. Um, so anyway, the, this economic miracle happens and it is hard to overstate just how extreme it is. Uh, we're dealing with the second fastest growing economy of the planet at this point. Only Japan, and let's think about the famous example of like Sony, Toyota, all that stuff. Right. Japan is its own story too, right? Um, Spain is the second fastest growing economy. It ends up, I believe the number was the 11th biggest economy in the world at the end of this period. And it ends in 1973 as so many economic miracles do because of the oil crisis, the open mm-hmm. oil crisis. But during this time, you have massive influx of tourism. By the way, tourists go to department stores and buy things, right? Mm-hmm. Including, for instance, souvenirs of sunny Spain, which they visited. Department stores like Galeria Especiales will cater to these tourists, right? Put on international product shows, right? They will also cater to Spanish consumers who have more money in their pockets now because there is uh, economic growth fueled by this influx of both tourism money, but also investment in Spanish business. And uh, one sort of concrete example that I can that I can uh, offer, for instance, is one of the biggest public relations and advertising firms in Spain. In the 50s and early 60s, was a company called Publicidad Ruescas. Right, uh, Ruescas was was merged, really acquired, in 1964 by a little organization called McCann Erickson, only the largest at multinational advertising agency on the planet. Right. As anyone who has uh, watched the show Mad Men will recognize, yeah. <laughs> McCann Erickson mentioned quite a bit, it became Royce McCann Erickson, with lots of hyphens. But anyway, y- you have a lot of this kind of foreign acquisition and also influx of investment. And what that means, J. Walter Thompson, the other leading multinational advertising agency at this time, uh, also invests heavily in I believe the agency was Publicidad Alas, but they invested, and, uh, and that money, that goes somewhere, and some of it goes to the livelihoods of the executives who work there. And also to the, you know, with tours, tourists coming in when they don't shop at Galerías of the they shop at another store, and that's revenue. And that makes its way through the system. There's a lot more money. There's also much more consumer spectacle because you have well-dressed English persons, French persons, Swedes, what have you coming in? And you see a lot of Spaniards who are saying this, and they're like, Yeah, I, I want to do that. Yeah, that, sounds, that looks good. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And these stores are going to cater to that. And which means not only more stock on the shelves, but also more attention and, when possible, adherence to these foreign lines of what to stock, right? Mm-hmm. Foreign fashion. Once those fashions start to, include certain transgressive garments, like, for instance, Cough Cough the Bikini, you get a situation where the Franco regime has to make some choices. Uh, Are they going to come down on this? Are they going to send the Guardia Civil to police the beaches, which they do for a while? Are they eventually going to realize that arresting foreigners for wearing bikinis or wearing clothes that are considered too flamboyant is not a good look? for a country that's trying to court tourism and kind of back off and thus slowly erode their own sort of spiritual claim to difference or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what happens. It's subtle. It's, mm-hmm. it's not regime toppling. But you get uh, a gradual marching on of cultural and social convergence.
0: Right.
1: That leaves people with the sense of, yeah, Spain is one of one of the many, right? Not in a bad way, in many ways in a good way, because all mm-hmm. of Europe is prospering at this time.
0: What about that corporate culture of these department stores that we talked about the, before and, yeah. and how it was so basically franquista, you know, very much sort of regimented, the gender norms and so on. Can we see some of these uh, changes reflected in that corporate culture as well as as we talk about this uh, late Franco period?
1: This is a wonderful question, and it actually provides an opportunity to talk a little bit about the the internal differences, because the department store sector is not uniform, right? Mm -hmm. Galerias Preciados is sort of, in in the 50s and 60s, the reference point. They are the big success story, and lots of so I mentioned earlier that they've been spreading. Another way in which the store sort of indirectly spread or you know, its influence spread without the store spreading was that many other department stores that existed, smaller uh, ventures, took their cues from Galerías because they seemed to have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. One of the best examples of this is a, uh, a store that only ever had two locations, Almacenes Botas of Oviedo in Asturias. Of course, they also had a bit of a personal stake in this because Pepín was a hometown boy, right? He was an Asturian himself. So they part- found his story particularly inspiring. So Botas aped Galerías Preciados in in some ways. They founded a bulletin of their own, which was very similar to, to the bulletin de Galerías Preciados. They had their own code of conduct, the Normas de Botas, even used the same name, right, the Normas, mm-hmm. And, uh, and was styled in similar fashion. Some of these stores mimicked Galerias, but not all did, right? And there are really three big stores that kind of we can, we can look at that, that, that illustrate the different trajectories that these stores followed as, as this process played out. Galerias, I'll get to last because that's really where the fun story is. Uh, El Corte Ingles always maintained a careful neutrality toward the regime they weren't anti francoist they weren't you know beacons of progressivism Mm -hmm. indeed i will just point out um for listeners who may not have noticed this women workers shop floor workers at el corte ingles only won the right to wear pants as opposed to a skirt in 2006 wow wow (laughs) Uh, so i'm not holding up el corte ingles as some kind of beacon of progressivism here yeah um but they were neutral so like Bikinis are going to, you know, are going to move and we're going to make money. OK, yeah, we got no problems with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Galerias Preciados had a little bit more of, a, of an ideological predisposition, right? You know, they had some, some baggage there that they didn't want to let go of. Uh, the a store that comes in, though, in, it, it opens its first branch only in 1967. Uh, breaks ground in '66, opens in '67, and was first founded as an organization in Spain in 1964 is a name that to our American viewers is going to sound very familiar. This is Sears Roebuck. Mm-hmm. That's right. There was a Sears in Spain, and it was not a small thing. You see, Sears had pursued for decades at this point a, a an internationalizing strategy. It was a multinational with an extensive presence throughout Latin America. Uh, Spain was its first European toehold. Uh, and the uh, I have a very good fortune of having a bit of an inside view into a little bit of this, because my great-uncle, Alfonso Luizan, was the first head of personnel of the oh, wow. Sears Barcelona branch. So I have access to his uh, privately published memoirs, where he talks a little And I, use, I, I like to use Sears as a great example of how uh, a company culture could develop in an active sort of Uncontested, uh, leaning into it type of way as these things are playing out. They found their own magazine, their own employee magazine. This one largely run by the employees. It's a an analog to uh, an uh, identically titled magazine that exists in in Sears's other international divisions called Noti Sears. Noti Sears was a far more kind of open organ. It's still per you know pushed company uh, company policy. Most especially policies that were very American and alien to the Spanish way of doing things like the customer is always right or satisfaction guarantee or your money back. These were actually not things that were traditional to, to Spanish uh, retail commerce, uh, especially the latter, the satisfaction guarantee. So they would devote articles where they'd explain this policy and seek to familiarize uh, store workers with this policy. But much of it was also just social. Stuff you know. Hey, you know we have this, uh, this store member who just a uh, won. It uh, was an amateur boxer and just won this match. You know, uh, here's a spotlight on this one store. De- he's a designer. He 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 would draw like posters for the inside of the store and and you know point of sale signs and like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eduardo llorens Eddie llorens, uh, who was a, a real world traveler. He loved to travel to other countries and visit Sears branches there. Sears. Leans into having youth sections where they're selling hippie fashions, mod fashions, and really leaning into the pop culture and having articles announcing, yeah, by the way, we're going to be, you know, selling all, you know, the latest Beatles records, you know, make sure you know, the, the, the our record section has been a real success. Let's make sure to have more people come in, unless these protestations of, you know, great loyalty and, you know, discipline, all of that. Uh, it really becomes dramatic in the late 70s when they have, like so many of these magazines do, they have a humor column, right, with cartoons. And I reproduce a couple of these cartoons in the back of, of uh, toward the tail end of my book, which, frankly, under the most of the regime would have fallen afoul of anti-pornography. There's, there's nudity, and uh, they're, they're raunchy. It's very raunchy humor. So Sears is really pushing this whole, yeah, you know, we're a big international community. Our workers are Sears citizens. They're not Spanish. They're not American. They're citizens of the great Sears family, the phrase they use. Okay. Galerias, on the other hand, had this armature already in place and suffers terribly. Oh, right? okay. They suffer terribly from disaffectation. People, uh, the, the employees which had once had much more active buy-in. The buy-in that we see in the bulletins, it it becomes clear that it's much more lackluster, much more lip service. At one point, even, the bulletin was sanitized. The bulletin um, of Galenias de I mentioned that it was a management uh, organ. And so it's generally not airing any kind of uh, dirty laundry. But the magazine is, by the early 1970s, going to have feature columns complaining a thing that is just not a thing before then, about how, for instance, readership has profoundly declined. Come on, people. Show your loyalty to the store. Buy issues. Nobody is writing in. Eventually, they're talking about how the the workers in-store syndicates, and to be clear, Galenias was no friend of union activity. These were very much like loyalist sort of internal governing bodies of the store. They're not getting enough candidates to actually run elections, because there's no buy-in, right? People mm-hmm. aren't willing to spend their extra time contributing to the governance of the store because they, that, that sense of like deep loyalty and obedience, it isn't there anymore. This doesn't destroy the store, right? Mm-hmm. But it is absolutely evidence of the fact that the system is not running the way it was supposed to.
0: Yeah, that, that's fascinating. It's It seems like uh, Galleries, it's it's almost like a metaphor for the Franco regime as a whole, you know, that they, they can adapt up to a certain extent, be, be open to consumerism and so forth. But at a certain point, there's a point at which they can adapt, you know, and, and something and is, has to change.
1: And this is no accident, because the thing is, it's not just a metaphor. Like, what the, the thing that I sort of argue, and you know, you got to take this with a grain of salt, you got to not Take the argument too far. Right. But I mentioned yeah. this whole idea of like subjective totalitarianism, rule by proxy, Francoism mm-hmm. by proxy, soft Francoism, if you will. Yeah, it's not an accident yeah, that, yeah. that, Fra- that, that Galerias is experiencing some of what the Franco regime is experiencing because, in a sort of proxy way, it is an instrument of the Franco regime. And so, or it functions as such when necessary. And so, of course, those effects are also being felt in the various organs, among the various organs that the regime likes to use as levers by which to exercise power. There's been uh, a really excellent work showing how this exact thing went on in in the ranks of the Catholic Church as the priesthood increasingly became disaffected and didn't no longer um agreed with the with the sort of macro policy of the ecclesiastical hierarchy uh, the Mm -hmm. highest levels of the ecclesiastical hierarchy and indeed even the bishops themselves eventually started to break with the regime
0: you've mentioned how in some ways we can kind of see your book as part of this criticism of the sort of the traditional top-down narrative of this transition which, which by the way um we just had a podcast about some of the other criticisms of the tradition with uh, Sebastian Favre last month. So people may want to listen to that episode as well. But in any case, I was wondering if you could use this opportunity to kind of sum up, you know, the argument that you're making, because you said that we have to be a little bit careful too, you know, and and not just say that, okay, it's because the department stores that we had the transition or something like that. But to what extent can we say that this rise of, the consumer culture in, in the Franco years in fame did help to facilitate this transition.
1: It provides tools. The sort of metaphor I've used before is like a, a path metaphor. It smooths the path. It you know, if you're thinking about like a mountain path, it removes some of the boulders and rocks. It makes the uh, the idea is, in short, that look, democratization is a big deal, right? The overhaul of the Francoist social order. And let's not forget, this was a 40 year long dictatorship. There are people, adults, who had grown up under Francoism and had never experienced anything else. And as our colleague, historian Antonio la Sánchez pointed out in a book of his, Fear and Progress, there was a culture of, of really repressive silence in the early regime in terms of like what had come before and possible alternative ways to be in the like the most repressive early years of the Franco regime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you also have like this culture of active forgetting that had helped catalyze this, you know, before and after moment where Franco regime comes in and you have a Francoist generation, not necessarily a generation that is, you know, Francoist in their ideology, but rather that have been had their experiences shaped by it. right? Right. Or whom? The, the, the democratic transition is going to be a big deal, and the thing is the transition, the political transition, sure, that's, that's a, a really big deal, but what I'm arguing alongside historians like Pamela Radcliffe is that the transition is not 1975 to 1978, it's not hmm. even 1975 to 1982 – 82 being a, uh, a year that people point to because 75 is when Franco dies, and 82 is when there's the first peaceful transition of power to, uh, in the democratic era from one party to another uh, without any problems. And that party also happens to be the socialists, uh, which mm-hmm. who were very illegal under Franco. So this is like seen oftentimes as like a marker, right, of uh, the real success of democratic mm-hmm. reform. No, we have been uh, arguing increasingly, like pushing the beginnings of the transition back and back and back when you start to consider the transition as a a process that isn't just discreetly political in terms of structure, but also political and cultural and social in terms of practice, Mm -hmm. right? Lived practice, lived daily practice. And in that sense, the transition, the, the 60s are a period that is part of the transition. Right. Um, Again, I mentioned I'm a lumper, so, you know, this is this is a long, slow process. Francoism's death is a long, slow one. It's a Mm -hmm. process of decomposition, not collapse. Uh, I mean, I myself at one point used the term collapse of Francoism, I think, in in the book. But that's really more referring to, like, the seemingly sudden uh, seismic change that takes place in the late 70s. But the reality is that this is this is a change that was a long time coming and it brewed. And as far as the consumer side of things is concerned, you know, we all know famously from um, scholarship as fundamental and influential as, for instance, Benedict Anderson's notion of imagined communities, right? State systems, nations, peoples, they exist in the mind as much as they do in material world, right? You know, you have to have buy-in. You have, uh, people are Spanish Because they feel they are, because they feel that there's something that binds them to someone from the very other side of the country in a fundamental way that they don't have with someone who might be from the next valley over, but it's on the other side of the national border. Well, similarly, the Franco regime and Francoist Spain relies on a number of these kind of imagined notions, right? Francoism is is a state of being, not just an actual political regime. This is also, as a sidebar, why some people talk about like the the persistence of sociological Francoism and franquismo sociológico, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cr- critics of what they maintain are illiberal ticks, illiberal vestiges of the Franco era, even today, in the Spanish political system. So the, this this points at that, right? That Francoism is more than just you know who's in power, and in that sense. It's a system that also requires more widespread dismantling, right? You could have a, a change of the system from a dictatorship to a constitutional monarchy, but if that constitutional monarchy, the constitution was an, a dead letter, right? And the monarch ruled essentially as Franco 2.0. Then 2. also what you have is what Franco intended, uh, mm-hmm. what he always intended when he named Prince Juan Carlos as his successor. Whatever your critiques of the modern Spanish state, and there are some fair ones, I believe, that it is true also that, that this is not that. Where I think the change that took place in the consumer realm, including in department stores, alongside a number of other threads, uh, including these associations that Pamela has looked at, including tourism, as historian Sasha Pack has looked at, as well as you know, outright political changes, demographic changes that take place, the, uh, what all of these things combined to do is erode the, 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 the real foundations of, of this Francoist social order, such that when 1975 rolls around, when Franco, who was a larger-than-life figure uh, and who had this weight of history behind him, died, there was all the social capital in the world. For doing something as radical as democratized. Very little real argument when you've just looked at what Spain was for any kind of, at this point, blatantly anachronistic notion of Spain being this like, you know, spiritual reservoir of the Occident or whatever. Right? It, um, and that and that's that's the the subtle but persistent effect that takes place here.
0: I wanna thank you so much, uh, Alex, for coming on the program. It's uh, been a really fascinating discussion. And I know I'm next time I'm in, in, in Spain shopping at the Corte Inglés uh, uh, or whatnot, I'm gonna
1: look at it in a whole new way. I, 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 uh, I'm glad that I can help. And thank you for having me on the show. It's been a rip.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.